Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Hello and welcome to Garden Success. We're looking forward to talking to you today. My goodness, uh, it is spring. Spring has sprung. The weather's great outside. Uh, I, I would say if you're not a gardener this time of the year, you're probably not a gardener. But we're going to try to change that. You know, anybody who has a lawn, uh, anybody who has a garden or wants to have a garden or flowers, give us a call. If you live on a high-rise, I don't know that we have a lot of high-rises in Bryan College Station, but let's say you live on the whatever floor of a, of a building and an apartment, and all you guys a little patio or maybe a window with an orchid sitting in the window or a houseplant, give us a call. We can help you with that. We are here to encourage people in any way we can to enjoy the hobby of gardening, to enjoy being around plants and growing plants, uh, it is therapy. I'm telling you, it's just, uh, I get a lot of benefit out of just being out in the garden, puttering around, doing some things, making something better. Uh, gardening is uh, kind of a source of never-ending hope. <laughs> you, Every year, you know, you see a tomato in a seed catalog, or maybe you're visiting a local garden center and you see a plant, and you can just picture it in your yard. Uh, you can picture what it's going to look like and there's that hope that's involved. And sometimes uh, the hope is not realized because maybe the plant's not adapted to here or maybe something goes wrong in the care of it. Uh, but a lot of times it becomes a very treasured part of your landscape or of your garden because you, you envisioned it, you bought it, and you planted it and you took care of it. But we're here to help you make sure that that hope is realized. And so I hope you will give us a call. Our number is 845-5689. I know we have some folks living, listening from outside the area. 979-845-5689. Our email is gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. So give us a call or send me an email. I've got a few emails we're going to be going through today, and we look forward to also getting one from you. If you send a picture, by the way, with an email, uh, after you take the picture, uh, look at it on your phone and make sure that it's in good focus. Sometimes you're holding something up close and the camera focuses on something way in the background, and we end up with just a fuzzy image that's un unidentifiable. Uh, but check it and make sure. The closer you can get to any question, uh, like a leaf or a bug or whatever, uh, the better job I can do in uh, discerning what it is that you're uh, trying to get help with. Well, let's uh, start off by going to the phones. Our number again, 979-845-5689. And let's talk to Bill. Hello, Bill. Hello, Skip. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I, have, I have a question on cross-pollination of, of watermelon varieties. I would like to plant uh, two different varieties of watermelon in my garden. Mm -hmm. The garden is only 15 by 30 feet. Yes. And so I'm wondering if that's a problem. Um, well, within the, within the, uh, the growth period of, of the plants themselves, or yes. if I'm using hybrid seeds, is right. what, what, kind of, yeah, what kind of problems do I have? No problem at all. Plant away. 
Now, if you okay. if you tell me you're going to save some seed, then that is a whole new question, and I would yeah, recommend no. recommend yeah. you not do that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The, okay. It, it, there's no there's no effect on this year's watermelons uh, if you you know t- just make sure that uh, that pollination is is occurring and you got a good a good mix. Now you're not yep. or I suppose you're not planting any kind of a seedless, right? Uh no. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know. Um yeah, I don't I don't know. Should I? Okay. Should I? <laughs> oh, well, I mean you can. I you know there there are some seedless out there that are worth planting uh, in the commercial world that uh, there are a, a number of varieties that are not available off the garden shelf that they use and so i i just think you can plant one that's seedless but you know i don't know i think seed spitting's part of summer <laughs> yeah yeah i i, I uh I, yeah that's kind of how i look at it i don't think i do have any seedless this time it, it crossed my mind when i was going to purchase some but uh, uh I, I don't i don't think i have those um okay well i think that's uh uh, the only question that I had. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Hey, I appreciate enjoy. the call, Bill. Thank you very much. Enjoy your program. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, yeah, when it comes to pollinating in the garden, there's there are some myths out there. Uh, let me start off by saying there is there's there's one common crop where pollination can affect the quality of the crop you're growing. And that would be with sweet corn. If you are planting a uh, one of the enhanced uh, genetic uh, lines that is called uh, a super sweet, for example, or there's other versions of that, but they're sweeter than sweet corn, uh, and you plant it with regular sweet corn, uh, and the pollination from the regular corn gets on the super sweet, uh, it's going to affect the quality of that. You're not going to get that super sweet that you're looking for. Uh, so the ears that you grow that are pollinated in that summer are going to not taste the same, okay? So what we do there is we separate them in time. If you want to grow a standard old sweet corn and then a super sweet, we generally will do the standard sweet corn first because it germinates better in a little bit cooler soil and then put the super sweet, uh, stagger it. I mean, look at the days to harvest. Hopefully they're, you know, pretty quick to harvest for, for compared to other corns. Uh, and you get those in and just make sure, you know, stagger them a couple of weeks so that the pollination is going to occur at different times. Uh, now, an area where people swear this happens and it doesn't uh, is hot peppers. Uh, someone will say, well, I bought mild banana peppers and I put them next to my jalapeno, Tabasco, fill in the blank, and my mild banana peppers are hot this year on the plant. Well, you didn't get a mild banana pepper. You probably got a hot banana pepper. There are those, by the way, or some other thing. You know, sometimes plants get mislabeled or a label falls out and a different label gets put in. I mean, you know, we're all capable of making some mistakes, right? And so uh, this year's crop, you can have hot peppers next to mild peppers and they will not affect the heat in the mild pepper. Uh, Now, if you save seed, that's a whole different thing. So when you're saving seed, if it's a if it's a hybrid variety, uh, I wouldn't recommend saving the seed. I mean, unless you're just wanting to get out there and play around in the garden and see what comes up. But uh, the hybrids are a specific cross between two 
uh, identified individuals that make a good combination. And so the seeds from that cross are the hybrids that we buy because typically hybrids have this thing called hybrid vigor. There's some kind of a, a boost that comes from that particular genetics that makes them more fill in the blank, whatever you're going for, more productive or more vigorous or maybe more disease resistant or whatever. Uh, and so with with the hybrid seeds, they won't come back true because they're a Duke's mixture in the seed. And when you cross a Duke's mixture with a Duke's mixture, you get all kinds of things. And so I wouldn't save hybrid seed. Uh, but if it's a standard pollinated, if it's a, what we call open pollinated, meaning you can save the seed year after year, uh, an example of that would be like a contender green bean or a, a um, uh, let's see, uh, Clemson spineless okra would be another good example. Uh, well, you can save the seed from those, but you need to make sure there's nothing of that species nearby. So if you're Clemson spineless okra was go, growing next to, uh, let's say, one of the burgundy-colored okra pods. Well, the Clemson spineless seeds that you get out of that, that Clemson spineless plant are going to be a mix. And so if you want to maintain a variety, you've got to isolate it by distance or by time. Or in the case of okra, what I do when I'm crossing okra is I, I put a little bag over it so no bees allowed inside this bag and I'm the bee that carries the pollen to where I want it to go. So anyway, uh, I kind of expanded a little bit on Bill's question there, but I, I get a lot of versions of those questions over the years and and that that is as best I know it. Uh, what is? Our phone number is 979-845-5689 or gardensuccess at tamu.edu if you'd like to send an email. Uh, that would be, let's see, the, I want to I talk a little bit about vegetables. We're, we were you know, starting into that, so let, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, it's time to get out your, your beans, your, your summer beans. Uh, that would be snap beans, lima beans, pole beans, bush beans, whatever you're planting. Those, those need to go in now. We are in prime time for planting those. Now you can plant them on into April, but I'll tell you this, the sooner you get them in, the sooner they'll produce. And when green beans don't harvest until the temperature really heats up, uh, that quality is not going to be the same. It's one of the reasons I like to plant uh, green beans in late August for a fall harvest because they are, when they're producing, the weather, the heat has broken and we now have milder temperatures and it's just a better quality bean. So even though you can plant them later, the sooner you do it, the better, the better you will be, better off you'll be. Swiss chard can go in now. Uh, Swiss chard is it's a beautiful vegetable, especially the colored types that uh, rainbow chard and and uh, the uh, rub well, they call it rhubarb chard. It's not kinder rhubarb. It's just reddish color, so that that's why they give it that name. Uh, but those are really beautiful plants. They can be used as ornamentals even if you wish. Uh, but I love to plant and grow Swiss chard. It's a it's a very mild green. You know, a lot of our greens have some sort of a unique flavor that some people don't like. Uh, especially some of the pungent ones. Uh, but even something like spinach, it's got a uniqueness to the flavor, and not everybody is, is a huge fan. Uh, I would say spinach is definitely one of the mild, widespread, popular greens. But uh, when you're looking at chard, you've got a green that is, 
it's not going to offend anybody. It's uh, uh, offend their taste buds. It is. It's very mild. Uh, you can cook it in a lot of ways and season it and, and make it like what you want. But uh, it's a good time for that. So it's finally warming up enough to begin planting cucumbers, uh, eggplant. Um, I don't know. I, I would put out peppers and certainly tomatoes uh, sooner rather than later on the tomatoes for sure. Uh, those can all go in now. Uh, that would include summer and winter squash too, by the way. And uh, so if you wait a little bit longer and the weather is a little bit warmer, some of the transplants, you know, peppers and eggplant, they'll probably be a little bit happier with a little warmer soil and not quite as cool of nights. Uh, although our nights right now aren't, that, aren't cool at all. Uh, that when we get a little front through here, sometimes it can cool off a bit. But anyway, time to get all those in. Uh, this is the time I refer to as the traffic jam in the vegetable garden. Uh, you know, we've got the winter time when there's only certain group of vegetables that you can grow. The summer time when there's certain group of vegetables that can survive there. There's certainly not a July and August traffic jam in the garden. Our species list goes way down when it gets hot. Uh, but in the spring, we have a big traffic jam, and that's because your broccoli, your cabbage, your cauliflower, your Brussels sprouts, I bet your spinach is still going. Mine is still looking good. Um, my lettuce, some of it has actually started to bolt, but lettuce is another one. And all of those are in, and you're harvesting them, uh, even cool season peas. But yet it's the time, I'm telling you, hurry up, get those beans in, get your squash, get your tomatoes in, hurry up on those. Uh, peppers and eggplant pretty soon. So what do we do? You know, do you pull up your cool season earlier than you would have? Do you delay planting the warm season? Sometimes that's okay with certain crops, but a lot of times not. Uh, and so this is, this is the traffic jam, and you can come up with various ways to deal with it. Uh, I often will start things that I don't normally transplant as transplants uh, if I want to give a little more time to something that's still growing. So for example, squash, uh, cucumbers, th they're not going to be happy if you leave them in a transplant container very long. But if you just need a week or so, week or two maybe, uh, you can grow them in a larger container, not the little six packs, but maybe a four inch pot or something, and get you a transplant ready so that when you pull the cool season out, prepare the soil, you've already got a plant going. You're not just starting from a seed. So that's one way to kind of hedge your bet. But I bet you know of other ways you figured out yourself. Our phone number is 979-845-5689 and the email success at tamu.edu. Let's talk about what you are interested in. Uh, Robert emailed and asked a question about thatch in uh, St. Augustine lawns. Uh, do we need to be worried about that? Well, thatch is uh, caused in all lawns by rapid growth of the grass tissues that don't break down as fast. So your grass clippings are not contributing in a significant way to thatch unless you're just really overwater and fertilizing. But uh, the, um, uh, in St. Augustine, it's the stolons above ground that are, that are more, think of them in between a clipping and something that's woody. They have tissues, lignin and things that don't just decompose real fast like clippings do. And if you fertilize a lot and you get all these stolons just crawling around one on top of the other over and over again, you end up with this real thatchy layer where the new stolons up on top are having trouble, you know, getting a root down in the ground and, and the grass isn't performing as well. 
So on a St. Augustine lawn, you pretty much have to, well, in my opinion, you have to force it to make thatch, a significant amount of thatch that would be a problem. A well-managed, properly fertilized and watered and mowed St. Augustine lawn generally is not a thatch problem. Uh, the the thatchers that go through and, and kind of rip out all the debris uh, for clumping types of grasses, which we just pretty much don't grow here, uh, that's fine. But with the runners of St. Augustine, they get ripped up, they get cut. It's a lot more damaging to the plant. Uh, with things like Bermuda grass and zoysia, they've got the underground stolons or rhizomes as well as the runners, and so dethatching is not such a problem. So number one, I, I wouldn't grow myself into thatch. Number two, if you think you have thatch, uh, I, you, I would take a close look at it, a little compost top dressing to help speed some decomposition wouldn't hurt, uh, uh, aerating, and with a with a core aerator, not one that presses a hole in the ground, but one that goes into the soil and pops out a plug that it drops on the surface. That aerating gets some soil up there and can also help get that thatch decomposing a little bit faster. So Robert, hopefully that's a little bit of help. Uh, let's go to the phones now, the number 979-845-5689, and we're gonna talk to Dade. Hello, Dade. Hey, Skip. Uh I've got a question about early blight. Okay. First of all, uh, Dale, sorry for the, the calling you Dade. What, what's your question about early blight? That's, that's okay. That's an enunciation problem on my part, probably with your call answering person. So, all right. Don't, uh, don't throw yourself under the bus. It's probably me. <laughs> actually, okay. actually, he wrote it right. He wrote it right. I just can't read. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the question is, I, I, I do raised bed gardening, and my tomatoes consistently end up with early blight. Um, even though I put a plastic mulch down over the surface and I do drip irrigation, uh, I have uh, cages made out of concrete reinforcing wire that I use. And my question is, could I be getting carryover of the fungus on my cages that is causing the, it to develop eventually? That is a good question. Um, if anybody, if any plant pathologist is listening, anybody from uh, Dr. Ong or do, the lab, uh, I would appreciate a call to uh, help enlighten me a little bit about that. I don't normally think of a fungal spore as sitting on the tomato cages, the wire cages, and surviving through the winter to, to reinfect. So I'm gonna guess no. Uh, I'm fairly sure about that, but I could be wrong. But if you have plant debris laying around that's maybe on the surface, for example, and uh, then I, I could see there being some release of spores uh, coming out and getting getting it going again. You should not have that kind of early blight problem with your description of how you're growing them. You're doing everything right to, to reduce fungal leaf spot. You're reducing soil splashing. You're not wetting the foliage with irrigation. Uh, so uh, you might also consider some other varieties. Off the top of my head, I can't name you know, the varieties that are most early blight resistant. But if you were to go look, search that, you could you could find some. And maybe switching a variety could help. Okay, I've, I've grown gardens in several different states and came here from Louisiana a couple of years ago where I had the same challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, I've worked at 
taking all the uh, prevention that I can. I'm just that was a, a thought that occurred to me recently because I used the copper fungicides early in the season, and in, and things don't develop until later. Um, I get a good crop of tomatoes, but the plants it just moves from the bottom towards the top. Right. And, yeah, and I, I I don't have any trouble with the fruits or anything. Yes. And with the heat here, I get a good crop before the heat basically stops the tomatoes from producing anyhow. Right. Um, but when it shows up again in the fall with fall tomatoes, that was what surprised me last year is how robustly it came on in the fall. Uh, and what my thought was this year, I'm going to try in the fall, I'm going to use stakes and not the cages and see if I get a different outcome because the plants aren't nearly as big in the fall as they get in the summer right um in the spring i guess we should say here mm-hmm. uh, by summertime late june the tomatoes pretty much aren't producing any new fruit because of the right. heat and the pollination challenges so yeah okay that's, so that, that, that's that was a, a good, good yeah that's a possibility i i don't know i uh one one other thing and you're probably doing this is when you start to see the discoloration that indicates there's a fungal infection happening. Before you get the big dead spots, you can see some yellowing. I would pick those lower leaves off uh, and get them off the plant. When you have leaves above that are catching the sunlight, the lower leaves aren't getting as much anyway. And when they're starting to get diseased, catching it early before those spots start to produce spores, and then you really have a typhoid mary in your tomato patch uh, infecting the rest of the plant. You know, one of the things I and just reading lately, I see that eggplants can be affected by the early blight, and I've never had any trouble with the eggplants growing in, in raised beds very close to tomatoes. And I, yeah. I've wondered, could I be having late blight instead of early blight? I don't, I don't know that. I haven't really looked at that closely. So I think this is stump the chump day on garden success. Uh, I've not seen eggplant with early blight either, so I'm not saying it can't happen, but I've never had eggplant with early blight problems. Uh, If your comment about the tomatoes being next to the eggplant, for a lot of diseases, the the strain that is on a species of plant is different than the strain that's on another species. For example, uh, uh, crepe myrtles that are not resistant can get powdery mildew. You can get powdery mildew on your rock rose and, and other things. You can get powdery mildew on a rose, but Rose powdery mildew is not going to affect your crepe myrtles or vice versa. Now, there are some ex- times when that can happen, but in general, uh, it's a little different strain. Now, the fact that tomatoes and eggplant are in the same family and closely related, you might be able to get a crossover, but I'm going to look it up after we uh, get through with the show today because you've made me curious. Okay. Well, I appreciate your thoughts and keep up the good work with your show. Thank you, Dale. All right. Bye now. Bye bye. We're going to go to the phones, 979 845 5689. Give us a call. Uh, and we're going to talk to Linda. Hello, Linda. Uh, hey, Skip. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Um, my question is I am so determined to get a good crop of zucchini where no squash bugs get it this year. And so I took your advice, bought some insect netting. I sent you a picture email of the little setup I have. Um, my question is, uh, I planted the squash a couple weeks ago, and as you can see, if you got the picture, they're starting to come up. They're getting their second leaves. Yes. Um, when does the netting go on? 
Okay. Uh, Linda, I don't see a lot of other garden beds. Is that the one you grow squash in every year? No, I rotate. So I had tomatoes in it last year. Okay. The other question is you use the term squash bug. Do you mean squash vine borer or do you mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, good. Uh, Because there is something called squash bug, which is, I find, it's interesting because it's the only insect I know of that the name of the insect and the recommended control is the same. Squash (sighs) bug. All right. Sorry. I need a little cymbal and drum to <laughs> set off the joke. Uh, so if, if you didn't grow them there last year, then yeah. any previous year's um, squash vine borers have came out last year. Uh, they don't sit there for three years in the garden uh, coming back later. If you net that, you shouldn't have any problems. And I would net it sooner rather than later. We're early okay. for squash vine borer for sure, uh, way early. But let's just go ahead and get it netted because light okay. and air is going to move through it and leave it on until either leave it on permanently and lift the netting up when you go out each day to do your own pollination from the uh-huh. male to female blooms or wait until the first female bloom uh, comes out before the bloom opens. But you can see it's got the little baby squash at the bottom. And mm-hmm. then take the netting off. By then, you'll have a larger plant. Typically, a lot of the squashes mm-hmm. set male blooms before they set female blooms uh, mm-hmm. or start to set a mix. And uh, you delay it as long as you can. And then when you're going to have a female bloom open, take the net off. Let the bees do the work for you. And, and a squash vine borer will find it, but you will have at least delayed it enough to get some good yield. Okay. Um, my next question is when I put that um, covering over it, how tight does it need to be to keep that insect from coming in? Squash vine borer is not one that will crawl around to try to get underneath the netting. Uh, okay. So, you know, it doesn't need to be tight, just secured enough to not, uh, you know, blow off or get moved out of the way. Uh, okay. But that, that vine borer, have you seen the adults in the garden before? Uh, yes. So yes. You, you're familiar yeah. with the yeah. look of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I always go out in the morning when it's early and I guess even for squash season, the cooler part of the day, I wouldn't call it cool, but cooler part of the day, uh, and that's when you see them sitting out there. And um, yeah. something that uh, I have done before that's it's an interesting practice, but you just plant a squash in a container or somewhere else that you don't cover and watch it in the mornings and you'll know when the vine borers have arrived because one will find it and then you can yeah. sacrifice that plant if you want but uh, that's another way to kind of time it uh, when it's time to start dealing with those guys okay um and i have one other small question about tomatoes so i've got my tomatoes in and they're all ready maybe needing pruning so what is your advice on pruning tomato plants as they grow Okay. Uh, just so I know, uh, do you happen to have variety names for them or not? Oh, my gosh. It's I okay have, if you don't. I, I Well, I, I do. I mean, I, I try to buy um, tomato plants that harvest quickly, you know, right. so less than 70 days to harvest for the okay. most part. So, um, so I've, I have early girl, of course, and some celebrity, and I have some, I have all different ones, okay. like homestead and okay. anyway. Well, I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to know all about every variety you, you have, but so, right. like celebrity is a semi-determinant, uh, determinant ones grow up, set their fruit all at one time, basically. And okay. semi-determinant in between and the indeterminate, they just vine and vine and keep setting fruit. Although our season right. here isn't mild enough to, to benefit from the fact that they're trying to continue to set fruit. 
but what I what I would do is if it's a semi-determinant type of plant, uh, I would when the first uh, shoots start happening. So here comes the stem up out of the ground, and then where you have a leaf in that axle between the leaf and the stem, that's where mm -hmm. the new shoot comes out. Mm -hmm. I would pinch everything out for three or four nodes going up the stem, and then okay. I, I would let it branch out. Now, if you're doing it on a stake, you would continue to prune those out, and you would sort of train one or two trunks to the stake for your production. If you're doing it in a cage, what I just described is pretty good, because if you start letting them produce suckers early on and then their suckers produce suckers and their suckers suckers produce you know what I'm saying yeah. it just yeah. becomes a mass in there and it, that's not a good thing right all right what about pruning those first few branches that come off like the bond the ones that touch the ground yes I would I would I wouldn't let a side branch start to occur until you've gotten at least about three or four uh, nodes high above the ground. Okay. You're taking off, think of it this way, take off the first three or four of those. And, okay. and then when new ones occur, you may need to do a little bit of suckering because now you may have two or three trunks and you don't want those to turn into 20 or 30. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that answers that question. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. That looks like a great bed you've got there. And uh, yeah. We have several of those, but yeah, that's that's the one for squash this year. All right. Well, good luck. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, I uh, was talking about vegetables before we took a little break there for some calls, uh, and I just want to continue to say that uh, everything you can do to improve your soil before you plant is a good idea. So when you pull out your cool season crops, spread an inch of compost over the surface, mix it in well, and then you're ready to go with the next planting. Uh, there's nothing wrong with leaving a bed fallow if you're fortunate enough to have plenty of room. Most, most of us have you know, just about the number of beds we need, so we really don't want one to sit fallow for long. Uh, but you can mulch them deeply and, and let them just sit there and let that mulch decompose. Uh, kind of give them a rest. That's that's okay if you have the, the space. Uh, I realize that. Not the case for a lot of people. Uh, if you are wanting to uh, get ready for your summer garden, by the time we get into April, uh, beginning of April, somewhere mid-April is when we really are getting in those warm, or I should say hot weather tolerant uh, plants. You know, your melons and, and uh, some of the, the uh, winter squashes, for example, could could take that. Southern peas and so on, sweet potatoes, you know, you know those. All examples of, of plants we can plant a little bit later. But we got enough of a traffic jam right now. Let's, uh, let's hold off on, on those. Uh, we're going to go back to the phones and talk to Bill. Hey, Bill. Hey, yep. Uh, I uh, started some vinca seeds, and I, I looked up the instructions. You're supposed to leave them in the dark uh, until they uh, germinate, and they have. And they look so delicate, I'm sort of afraid to put them out in the full sun we have today. Okay. Uh, what, what's your advice? Did you say vinca? I did. Okay. Uh, so... We're, and I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. You're not talking about the ground cover vinca. You're talking about the um, flowering the, the, red, white, the flowering and pink. One, yeah. Okay, yeah. So 
I would let them get bigger. I'd let them get probably at least three to five leaves on them before you transplant them out. You could do it sooner if you take good care of them, uh, but part of the benefit of growing a transplant is you can have a nice stocky strong plant before it goes out there. And like Vinca likes warm weather. So, you know, we get some nights in the 50s. It's not going to be real happy about that. Uh, but uh, delaying it a little bit would, would give you a way to sort of hedge your bet a little bit. So, But okay. if you need to plant them out, you can. It's just the soil's what? a little on the cool side. Okay. Well, should I, uh, could they take full sun now or should I uh, put, do partial shade? Did, did you start them under a light? No. No, I started them in a black plastic garbage bag, and uh, I took them out this morning. They'd all sprouted, and uh, oh, okay. I'm sorry, I missed that. No, don't yeah. don't put them in the sun. Uh, you can you can do one one of a couple things. I'm assuming you don't have a light set up to to put them under, and so, yes, I do. Oh, you I, do. I do have a grow light. Okay, it, is it a is it a a um, Fluorescent bulbs or LED? No, it's the uh, it's the LED with the multi uh, spectrum. Oh, okay, all right. Well, yeah, you could move them under there, but yeah, the minute the first sprouting, get them out of that bag because when they start off stretching, the term is a tealated, uh, yeah. a little spindly. It's kind of hard to recover from that, but uh, sure. I would get them under light and a, a lot of light as soon as you can. Uh, now, when I say a lot, I mean your grow light, not sun, direct sun. And let's get them a little stockier. Uh, you can rub your hands over the seedlings when they're big enough to do that, or a little pencil, just to kind of move them around. That'll make the stems a little stronger and stiffer. Uh, some people use fan to do that. A fan just kind of oscillating going by a couple times a day uh, would, would also accomplish that. Uh, but get a little bit bigger. Eventually, uh, you will want to move them outside where they get a really bright shade, maybe a little morning sun and then they get a little bit of shade, and that's kind of a halfway step to being put right out there in the full sun garden. Okay, that's that's very good advice, and this is sort of an experiment. These are a uh, uh, seed I collected from one of my neighbors that is wonderful, wonderful uh, bright red that I haven't seen okay. very often. Well, and, uh, that's good. And I'm hoping good. it will come true. <laughs> yeah, well, send me a picture. Who knows? We may have the Bill, Madag I call them Madagascar periwinkles because other things are called Vinca. Uh, we may have the Bill variety soon to be released in the BCS area. No, we'll have to name it after my neighbor I got the seeds from. So it's, uh, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be the Myrna. 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 There you go. <laughs> that 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 comes off the tongue uh, real nicely. Yeah. That's that's a beautiful beautiful name and variety name. Okay, well seriously, do keep me posted. If we have one that's a deeper red, I'd be kind of curious about that. Okay. All right. Appreciate Thank you for the call, Bill. Our phone number is nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine, or you can reach me by email at garden success at t a m u. Dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu uh, let's see becky asked about a replacement for an italian cypress uh, you know those are the really tall juniper looking uh, plants if you if you picture a mediterranean villa it's those tall green things evergreen things that are around the around the villa here uh, our climate is a little on the wet side 
and there are some fungal diseases of the foliage that will cause little dead patches in it. And those things don't fill in again well when you lose a section of foliage. You kind of have a hole in the plant. Uh, and so she asked about sky pencil, holly. My experience with sky pencil is that it, it doesn't perform super well here. Uh, someone else, if you've had other experiences, I'd love to hear it. But I, I wouldn't go with a sky pencil. I might go with one of the upright yopons. Uh, now, the problem with the upright yopons, and when I say upright yopon, you probably are kind of wondering what, what am I talking about, or some of you are wondering what I'm talking about. It, it's just as the name implies, they, you know, they're starting off about two feet wide, and they'll eventually get maybe four feet or so, and they, they just go straight up. The problem with them is there's a bunch of shoots all going straight up, and as they get tall, and then you get some wind and some rain that puts a little weight on the branches, they can tend to lean out and sort of, we, we say fall apart, but they just open up uh, higher up, and you lose that narrow columnar look. Uh, and so I, th that's my hesitation on those. I think we have some new ones that are doing a little better. There was one, oh gosh, what was it called? I'll think of the name in a minute that we were have hopeful for, but it's, it's also seeming to uh, open up a little bit. There actually is a well, I tell you what, I'm going to have to think about your, your question a little bit. We just don't have a lot of plants that have that nice form. That's that Italian cypress form. People love it. And uh, but I just tell you, don't don't plant one of those if you're listening, uh, because they do run into problems. Let's stop on that for a minute and go to the phones and talk to Ann. Hello, Ann. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for taking my call. I have a year old, actually three tomato plants that are about a year old, and they are still producing, and I must have about 20 blooms on them, and I'm not a gardener, and it's been in a wheelbarrow, so I had taken it into my uh, garage during the winter time, and uh, so I have a lot of really spindly uh, stems and things like that, but at yes. the end of my stems, I will have some really nice-looking leaves. Uh-huh. Uh, and some blooms. So I hate, since I'm not a gardener, I hate to think about cutting it back. All right. But is that a problem? No. Here's what I would do. I would get okay. go out toward the end of the long, spindly, leafless, vining things that are going everywhere, uh, yeah. and uh, put. The, I would bend the vine and try to put it in a gallon pot, uh, for example, a gallon. In, it could the, be, in the wheelbarrow. Yeah, set it in the wheelbarrow or let the vine stretch over beside the wheelbarrow and put a pot on the ground and bend the vine and have it go down in the soil and then come back out. So the, the leaves and the blooms you're bragging about, those are yeah. coming out of the soil. So it's like a vine that dips underground and comes back up, but you're doing it in a pot. Keep that moist and you're going to have roots forming on it within a couple of weeks for sure. Uh, I would give it about three weeks and then I would cut it loose from the mother plant. So the vine that went in the ground, where it goes in the ground, just cut it off. And now you will have a potted head start tomato plant that you can plant again in a wheelbarrow or out in the garden or however you want to do it. Okay. So just to, to verify this, I'm going to take a pot. I'm going to put it in, in the wheelbarrow and then put the, the stem in the pot, yes. in the wheelbarrow. Yes. And then you know, put the dirt in there and that kind of thing and then just water it and yes. and create a new 
Okay. Well, if, it, sounds- if it were in a garden, I would just say go out toward the end and bury a section of stem with a little soil and keep it moist. But you got this wheelbarrow thing going on, so I was just going to suggest put it in a garden pot, and that's basically the equivalent of covering it with soil when you put yeah. the vine down in the pot, uh, and they, it'll do really well, and you'll have a good head start. Okay, I even have a uh, red tomato on there. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, well, that ought to be bragging rights somewhere. I'm well, I've you. actually gotten quite a few, just, you know, one or two here or there throughout the Throughout the year. There you go. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ann. Appreciate the call. Let's go okay. to the, let's go to the phones now and talk to Roger. Hey, Roger. Hey, how are you? I'm well, thank you. So my wife and I have lived in Bryan for three years now, and we have this lovely home. But part of my uh, yard has uh, take all root rot. Okay. And I am wondering uh, what, you know, I, I'd kind of like to, I don't know, till it up and and see if the, if the yard can win. Uh, okay. Uh, well, uh, let me, let me ask a couple of questions. It, it, did you say it was St. Augustine or is it St. Augustine? Um, well, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of different varieties of grass in my yard but oh, okay. it is uh, probably saint augustine okay uh if if there's bermuda grass mixed with it and the take all has done significant damage this may be a good time to get rid of everything and start over with some fresh saint augustine because saint augustine and bermuda they're gonna kind of mingle and depending on the amount of light and water you know, one or the other may have the upper hand uh, but if you want just a nice, uniform species of grass, getting rid of all of it, this may be the time to do that. Now, if the, if the take-all spots are minor, or if you don't have the perennial grasses growing with the St. Augustine, then you might uh, want to, uh, you know, try to work with with taking care of it. Take-all is, is not easy to get rid of. There are fungicides that, that will control it. Or, well, let me put it this way. They will suppress it and manage it, but you don't you don't really eradicate it in most cases. Uh, we have other ways that we try to culturally help the grass along, uh, but the main thing is I would avoid any broadleaf weed control products when the temperatures are above the upper 80s because they stress St. Augustine, and a weak St. Augustine invites infection from take-all root rot. Uh, so... Uh, we, I guess I'm throwing out a lot of ideas there all at once, but if, sure. if you've lost only some spots here and there and you want to keep what you got, then e- either or either and spraying it with a fungicide that will fight take all root rot or um, and or putting a little bit of a compost top dressing over it uh, and and uh, what we often use sometimes is, is peat moss. Uh, that's right. That, uh, that's not a, an official recommendation uh, yet, but uh, we have seen in some extension trials peat moss suppress take-all root rot. So, and I don't know if I'll be able to describe this well enough to you. Uh, off of my street, going down my street, is uh, an underground pipeline. So, um, in essence, there's this kind of this berm that uh, forms down our street. And... Um, the berm uh, faces uh, to the um, 
west setting sun and on the other side of the berm is kind of where i have all these post oaks and uh the the yard's not really thick there and so i'm thinking i'm tired of trying to grow grass where grass doesn't want to grow okay and i'm wondering what i should put there around these post oaks or something uh just to sort of fill stuff in okay like cast iron plants or something. I don't know. Yes, you can do some things like that. You want to be real careful around post oaks to not plant something that's going to need a lot of watering because the post oaks will not like being watered a lot. Uh, and so, you know, if you were to put like Asian jasmine or something and water it quite a bit, that may that may be a problem for them. I see. And you don't want to lose one of the trees. You may get away with it, and some people in town do. But I've seen a lot of post oaks dying because we're gardening around them. You know, we're growing grass and other things. So I would go on the dry side. The um, cast iron plant will do pretty good. Get it established, and it'll do pretty good without just keeping it wet all the time. Uh I, if you ask the post oaks what you should do, they would say, let's get some leaves and uh, shredded wood product down there to just create a big mulched area. Uh, that's okay. that's what they would like. Uh, and so now that's visually maybe not what you want to look at, but that that would be that would be one of your options. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. Uh, here's my last question. I promise. Okay. Um, uh, when I was in Austin, we had this lovely moon lily plant that uh, did surprisingly well. And you know, when once it starts to flower, you just all of a sudden you have a hand, you have a bunch of seeds. I've got these seeds that are two or three years old. If I plant those, are those going to come up or just pitch those? Um, they should come up. Okay. When when you're talking about uh, moon lily. That you're talking about a true lily, right? It, trumpet. I'm talking. I, I'm talking about the ones that only bloom at night, and they're like a nightshade, uh, a gorgeous plant. Okay, I know what you're talking about. Do, do the blooms hang downward? Uh, I believe that's correct. Okay, that that is a, a relative of uh, uh, Brugmansia. Uh, that's that we call Datura. That's another name for it. Moon lily is not a common name uh, that that I've heard for it, but that that is one of the names that it can have. Uh, it's different than the Brugmansia angel's trumpet. Uh, the uh, moon lilies you have probably are what two feet, three feet tall, something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's funny. The uh, I had it in a pot, and then. Uh, the moon lily decided that that wasn't enough, so it just drilled down through the drain hole and yeah. kept going. <laughs> yeah, plants plants will do that. Uh, well, yeah. by the way, that that is a, a very toxic plant. So if you got little right. one, little ones running around, you want to avoid that. Uh, it's kin to the jimson weed. I don't know if if you uh, ever heard a guy named Gene Autry singing about back oh, in sure. the saddle again. He sings about jimson weed, and that's basically a cousin of what you're what you're talking about. Oh, right I see. There. But seriously, uh, the 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 plant you have, just give it some good sunlight. It does want sunlight uh, and okay. a moderate amount of moisture. Uh, it does it benefits a little bit from some shade during the hottest time of the day. Uh, but you know we don't have to go to great lengths to to keep it going. Uh, just okay. uh, yeah, they're they are uh, they're attractive. Oh, it's it's they're really fun to watch when they're they bloom because they bloom a lot 
mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, at least the one that we had in Austin. And uh, if I could get two or three of them going, uh, they're certainly kind of fun. Yeah. Um, well, you can. There's some that are almost all white, and then there most of them have a little bit of a purplish or lavender uh, to the bloom. So, yeah, these were these were stark white. Stark white. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, just uh, stunning. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet, uh, Roger. And if you want, uh, if you have a picture of any of the blooms, email them to me just so I can make sure sure we're talking about the same thing. All right? Will do. Thank you. Thank you. Uh Bye-bye. Well, I tell you, plant common names are a challenge. And I'm always kind of scrambling trying to make sure we're talking about the same plant. Uh, Let's go to the phones now and talk to Tracy. Hey, Tracy. Um, so my husband is starting a uh, nursery business in the backyard and just wondering if there's anything he should watch out for, any tips that you have uh, in that space. Wow. Um, is there a particular type of plant? or uh, Most is it... peppers and flowers peppers to start and flowers. with, but also looking at some herbs and things like that. Okay. What I would do is I would go talk to local home and, uh, uh, gardens. Uh, shop, nurseries, garden centers, uh, you know, places like Producers and the Farm Patch or even out um, Antique Rose Emporium out toward Brenham direction and just ask him the question, what do you have trouble getting that you would be interested in? I'd like to grow some things and would would you be interested in purchasing uh, and if, if you want to grow some quantity to sell like that, if you're just trying to sell to individuals, uh, you know, kind of more of a nickel dime uh, approach, then that would be a different thing. But I would make sure, number one, and get your get your marketing set up before anything, uh, a good quality mix, uh, a, a reasonable container, meaning reasonably priced, uh, purchasing your containers. Uh, if you have rainwater harvesting, that is a good source of watering because it's not as hard on some of the plants as our high sodium water. Uh, but you don't have to have that. Uh, a lot of garden centers are not watering with rainwater for sure. In fact, I doubt any are. Uh, but is that kind of the answer, or yeah, am I in the right ballpark? Yeah. Or if you have, yeah. do you have a follow up on that? Like something you I didn't answer that you want to know. Well, I guess the follow-up might be with Father's Day coming up a little bit. Do you have any suggestions in that space for um, for him that I could purchase? Ooh. You know, there's there's not a lot of time till Father's Day. You need something that moves pretty quick. Um, again, is, is he going to want to sell through a, a garden center? Uh, potentially. Potentially. He's potentially. looking right now and starting at um, uh, the farmer's market and getting that as a first step. Okay. Well, I understand that. So, uh, by the time we get to father's day stuff that you would want to put in the ground, one thing is called Angelonia. The common name is Southern Snapdragon, but Angelonia does well in our heat and it's pretty and it'll have a bloom in the container. So people will be willing, more willing to buy it. Uh, but Angelonia would be a good one for father's day. Uh, there is, uh, some lobularia, that is summer. Uh, the stream series is, is one of the lobularias that can also take some warm weather. Uh, you know, there's always a possibility of some zinnias, the dwarf type, that are more of a bedding plant. People would put in containers. They can take the warm weather. Uh, mm-hmm. those, those are a few things that kind of come to my mind off the top of my head. Okay. 
great. That's really helpful. And then last question is um, we have a big compost in the backyard, and we try as best as we can to sort of compost or reuse or whatever we do with any of our stuff. Um, is there anything that we can do with ash besides put it in the trash? You can spread wood ash at rates that are very low. If your soil is acidic, which I doubt it is here, uh, then wood ash can actually be a little bit more beneficial because it is a very basic uh, substance, uh, high pH in other words. I would be very careful not to overuse it. Uh, it contains certain nutrients and you can get online and, and uh, do a search for what are the nutrients in wood ash and some of that is dependent on what kind of wood uh, you know that it was it was made out of uh, but uh -huh. and it, it it is beneficial uh, the problem is the real way to do it and this is the horticulturist in me but uh, start with a soil test find out what nutrients you have and don't have and then look at the wood ash and say is that really going to benefit or is it just going to throw things more out of balance right okay yeah that, that would be my suggestion, but yeah, people do use wood ashes. Back when I was in Conroe, kind of east eastern part of Texas, I called it East Texas. They all told me that East Texas was north of Conroe. I didn't, I never could understand how you had to go north to get east. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, in Conroe, we we recommended people just yeah use them because you know your fireplace doesn't produce that much, and if you spread yeah. them thin, it's not a problem. Great. Well, thank you very much. That's, all, that's all, I had. all right, Tracy. Thank you for the call. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. All right. It is spring. Boy, you can tell it's spring. Phone rings more in spring. Uh, we we're talking about vegetables. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about flowers. There, There's a lot of wonderful flowers that you can plant. I was in uh, New Braunfels yesterday at their Garden Fiesta. It's a kind of a conference they have down there, the Master Gardeners put on. Uh, and speaking on hot weather flowers, you know, flowers that just are absolutely... Uh, we we called them fiesta type flowers, meaning they got all the big primary gaudy colors, you know. And and what are ones you can do that, that go through the heat? And I mentioned I mentioned angelonia or summer snapdragon just a minute ago. Uh, those aren't gaudy flowers. That's typically going to be you know some variations on blue and white and maybe a pink or red reddish color. Uh, but those are really good and dependable, and they'll go into the season. Uh, perennial hibiscus almost are always going to be like a red, white, pink, or some swirly, splotchy version of, of those colors. And they do well in the heat, and they just kind of keep going. The red bird of paradise makes a larger plant, but it has a gaudy flower. Uh, it's an orange and yellow. There, there are some other color versions, but almost always you see orange and yellow versions in the garden centers. If you got room for a little bush to grow and you can keep it from being soggy wet, in other words, a raised bed, good drainage, it is a beautiful flower uh, that does very well in the summer. And, and there are just many, many others that we can choose from. I still like yellow bells, even though they're planted a lot. Uh, it's sometimes uh, the, the yellow bells, well, there's orange versions of it now. And aside from a, a general uh, aversion to orange since childhood, uh, I, I, uh, am, the orange ones aren't as floriferous. The individual blooms aren't as big. The clusters of blooms aren't as big as the standard yellow one. But you want to find a variety called uh, um, Gold Star. Gold Star. And some of the hibiscus, Oh, gosh, I'm going backwards. Some of the yellow bells, which is also called Esperanza, by the way, uh, 
being sold as Gold Star aren't Gold Star. A Gold Star has a big broad leaf compared to the native type of yellow bells. It will start blooming when it's less than waist high. I mean, it, it just really starts blooming and it just keeps going. And no significant disease and insect problems on it. It blooms over a long period of time and it's a, it's a good one. If you need kind of a maybe a row of hedges or just um, you know a single plant that's a little larger in a bed, uh, I would uh, you know there's I'm just trying to decide. There's so many plants to recognize uh, at one time. Uh, I tell you, what, I'm going to shift and go a little bit different direction on this. Uh, when it comes to the bedding plants and the the uh, perennial gardens, you can't go wrong with salvias either. There are so many good, attractive salvias that are just beautiful. If you've got hanging baskets or if you've got a bed that you want a ground cover in, Portulaca and purslane uh, bloom all the time, and they will tolerate you forgetting to water them for a day or two. They're going to do okay. So those are some of the options. Hey, I've run out of time for today. I hope you listen to Garden Success again next Thursday from 12 to 1. Don't forget we're available by podcast. And let your neighbors know if they have any gardening interest or questions to tune in. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.